I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Between the butcher. Oh yeah. And the block. Far less traumatizing than I thought it would be. Hello, listeners, and welcome back, or welcome to Between the Butcher and the Block. Block, block, block. Um, we have the best sound effects here. Um, today, you're going to have the pleasure of not just listening to me and Steve rabbit on or chicken on, but we are going to be talking to two fantastic human beings. Um, Kat and Rachel, say hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Introduce yourselves briefly, like just well, say your name. Hello, I'm Kat. Hello, I'm Rachel. <laughs> Let's delve a little bit deeper about who you are. You're Kat and you're Rachel, but I want you to answer this question without giving us background of age, sex, um, career. Tell us. In a metaphysical answer, who are you, Rachel? Um, all right, without any of that information, I am a food-loving, equality-oriented person. Okay, all right. Food-loving. A food-loving. Yeah. You love eating food, making food, looking at food. What is your relationship with food? All things about food. If you put it in front of me, I will eat it. If you Oysters. show me a picture of it, I will look at it. I love food. Oysters. I will give it a go. Brain, muscle, tongue. Mm-hmm. All of it. Eat, eat the whole beast. Why not? You Bat. Pangolin. Okay. Is that making you sick, Cat? Not particularly, no. Nah. <laughs> okay. All, All right, right. Well, Rachel, tell us more about that. Is this a lifelong thing or have you recently become a foodie or? Oh, no, it's probably lifelong. You know, I've always loved finding a good markdown in Woolworths and seeing what you can do with it. <laughs> and would you say that you were brought up in kind of an adventurous food environment or? or... Mm, uh, yeah, probably. My dad is quite an adventurous foodie. So do you associate your food loving with your, your raising, with your family? Was it, was it a, were you all around the kitchen table, you all added to the process and helped out? Or were you like the, was it the little red hen that didn't want to help anyone? You don't know that fable? No, I know the fable. I probably, probably wouldn't say we all helped each other out. Um, but I personally enjoyed it. So I would help out in the kitchen. Okay, so how many of there are you? Your mum and dad, brother? A brother and a sister, so there's five of us. And you're the eldest? I'm the baby. You're the baby. Okay, so did you always get the most food as the baby? Did you get first picking? Absolutely not. If you're the baby, you have to fight for the leftovers. Ooh, okay. Which is probably why I like food now, because no one's fighting me for it. (laughs) And you still like making it, that, that whole process of cutting things up and looking at it and splashing some vinegar or whatever over the top? I do. We have a, we, I don't know if it's a real word or we just made it up, but we made up the word schmuna dinners in our house. And basically, Ooh. you use all the ingredients that shouldn't go together, but you, you just take oh, it. I like it. There's a thing now with pizza. They're having uh, curry chicken pizza and lasagna pizza. You into all that? I'm intrigued. Yeah, I haven't tried it, but like I'm a, interested. Hmm, the Teenage Mutant, the, the Michelangelo. Could he be used fun. to have weird and exotic toppings on his pizza. What about the salt? Do you do the salt off the elbow onto the plate? Uh, no. <laughs> no? Okay, all right. Well, there's always room to learn and grow, isn't there? Apparently some people even put like fruit, like pineapple on pizzas these days. Like, what <laughs> the hell? It's a raging debate. 
It's a I don't mind if other people want pineapple on their pizzas. That's fine. I don't have anything against it. As long as yep. it's not on my pizza, I'm cool with it. Well, are you the traditionalist? Are you three toppings? Being Italian? I don't know pizza? that that's traditional. There's a lot of, a lot of rumours and myths about traditional Italian pizza. The Italians can't even decide what's a traditional Italian pizza. Well, did it come from China? Was it invented <laughs> in China? I think it was. I think there's a rumour. Margot Polo bought it back from China or something, that's didn't he? noodles. No, nah, oh, okay. but that's another story. But Rachel, right. Rachel, if say you wanted to impress someone with a meal for whatever reason, and just asking this today, knowing your answer might be different a different day, say mm. you had, first of all, would you take them out for a meal or would you prepare something yourself? Uh, I think taking them out is the easy option. So... I would is that your preference? No, not necessarily. I think that's the easy option for everyone is to just go out. But I right. think you could learn someone by finding out what they like to cook. So what if you had to impress someone and you've got all the ingredients available to you, okay. what would you make? Um, I probably eat gnocchi the most. Ooh. So I would probably make some kind of delicious gnocchi. I'm really, I really like pumpkin gnocchi, you know. Okay. I'm going to try and learn new tricks and see what type of vegetables I can shove in there. Are you, are you headed for MasterChef level? Absolutely not. No, don't pumpkin have Pumpkin gnocchi. Yeah, yeah that now, sounds right, delicious. Before you impress anyone with this dish, you have to learn to pronounce it properly. <laughs> it's gnocchi. 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 See, Steve can do it. Gnocchi. <laughs> if the block can do it, Rach. <laughs> what, what about the setting, Rach? Does that all add to the uh, experience of coming to dinner at your house? Where are you serving? Out, out in the, under a uh, patio or on your back veranda or in the kitchen? Laundry. <laughs> Laundry, <laughs> eat it off the letterbox. Well, probably, probably just be boring and serve it at the table. Oh, table. Okay, TV on or TV off? There's no TV in my uh, room where the table is, so you're gonna have to force with me instead. Oh, nice. okay. I like and, it. And would fighting be involved? I didn't mean food fighting. I meant like growing up with your brother and sister and fighting for the. For the leftovers, is that still part of the, the custom or the ritual of your, at your I, table? I think it's created a, a habit in me that I like to portion before I serve food. So oh. everyone portions, don't touch my portion because you've got the same amount as me. So. <laughs> oh, this is getting heated. We haven't even sat down yet. What about you, Kat? If you were going to impress someone with food... Well, as uh, Steve, I think, alluded to when we were talking about all the parts of the animal, um, I, I don't, I don't curry, currently eat any parts of animals. Um, and so I, I have been getting creative with um, vegan alternatives. So the thing I'm most proud of recently is that I can make a pretty mean vegan cheese from scratch. Um, oh, so I would, I would um, make something <laughs> that showcased my almond feta. Oh, ramen fetish. Haha. <laughs> well, I wouldn't showcase that um, on, on, you know, a first dinner. Oh. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my almond feta. I, I, I think I've, I've tried a few other types of cheese, but the feta is the one that responds very well to, to a nutty beginning in my experience. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and, and how have you evolved to not eat? Like, I think if God didn't, if, let's say if there's a God, if he doesn't want us to eat cows, wouldn't he have made them run faster? <laughs> How have you evolved that you no longer eat? No animal product. What about eggs? Uh, no, no eggs. Um, okay. No, no. So no animal products at the moment. Um, I mean, it's, it's been a transition. So I, I was raised eating meat um, and I was raised being taught very explicitly that meat was uh, given to us to eat. Um, and then... Uh, over, over time, I evolved into a vegetarian diet, which was mostly really for budgeting reasons. I, I was living out of home and um, it, was, it was easier to eat fruit and veg and grains and stuff. I, I had a housemate who was vegetarian at the time as well. So um, we were, uh, yeah, just eating the same foods. And then I transitioned into 
veganism when I was asked bluntly um, by someone to explain why I thought it was okay to eat, uh, you know, the, the products of animals and not their flesh. And I did a, such a terrible job of explaining that logic that I um, uh, made myself a vegan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have a friend that played rugby league and he stopped halfway through the year just went cold turkey straight veganism diet mm -hmm. and he found that he was faster could concentrate better had a great response to it have, have you can you remember that time when you when you switched or transitioned yeah i never had the cold turkey moment um because i don't eat cold turkey <laughs> we'll do the jokes cat okay. yeah, yeah, we'll <laughs> i better get a sound effect there <laughs> no i I, I cut out red meat and was still eating white. Then I cut out white meat and was still eating, you know, um, dairy and eggs. I think the biggest thing was when I cut out dairy. Um, I've probably always been slightly lactose intolerant, but just, you know, um, went through it because it was delicious. So I think I think I saw a change there. Unfortunately, I'm never going to be the the poster girl for a, for a healthy vegan lifestyle. I'm very much a, a junk food vegan. Um, and so I still definitely eat myself into a food coma, feel very lethargic and sick after all the things I eat. They just don't happen to have anything that, that once had a face involved in, in the meals. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I noticed the kind of difference that you were talking about, Steve, with your friend, when I, when I cut out processed foods rather than any kind of subset. But, um, but that's fascinating, Kat. So you became a vegetarian largely for economic reasons, but then you became a vegan for kind of ethical reasons. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I didn't um, interrogate myself so much when I became a vegetarian. I was, all right, so here's a fun story. I was mostly vegetarian for budgetary reasons because it was easy because of who I was eating with, who I was hanging out with. And then I got into a conversation with someone um, uh, when I was still eating some meat, um, but I took the position of a vegetarian. I didn't explicitly say I was, but I argued on on the moral side of vegetarianism. Um, and then this group of people I was with at the time just assumed I was vegetarian and I felt like I was living a lie. So I had to just fully commit. So, oh. um, so yeah. it's interesting though, you still eat yeast. This is true. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Not convinced that yeast is a vegetable. <laughs> yeah um i i as i said it's been a slow transition and i have um i for a while i was eating oysters because as i like to call them they are the potatoes of the sea um uh, and i have recently um weaned myself off honey so who knows maybe yeast is next yeah so, well, sure. we're on this and before we come back to you cat and let you actually define yourself as something other than an irritating vegan. <laughs> um, let, let's throw it back to, to Rachel. Where do you stand on the so-called moral ethical question of eating things that walk around and sing? Well, even we could push it further because if, we're, if, if there's a lot of vegans that say it's the taking of the life and, and, for, and many will say, well, it's actually the slaughtering and, and the process that goes on. Because if it was just the taking of life, um, don't plants have life? So the poor little broccoli is just, just growing and just living off the sun and the water. And then you guys just come through and just chop its head off. Uh, isn't that just as bad, Rach? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> no? How do we know the broccoli doesn't have feelings? I mean, we don't. Psychologically speaking, we don't know if it has feelings or not. But How do we know if we have feelings? Well, some people don't, right? What do you oh, yeah. I don't mind it. I think everyone has the right to choose. Some people don't choose. I um, personally have a lot of allergies, so I find it really easy to order vegan meals a lot of the times because they're dairy-free and um, red meat-free and quite a lot of things that I can't eat. So I usually eat a lot of vegan, actually, so I have no problem. I'm really thankful for the restaurants that offer vegan alternatives because I can still eat delicious things. Um, so I think that there's actually quite a lot of people who eat vegan for health reasons and for allergy reasons. And I feel like it's even sometimes when I order vegan, 
people will throw like backhanded comments at me for ordering vegan, mm-hmm. not knowing that it's a medical problem. So I personally have no issue with if they want to, you know, eat meat, don't eat meat. For me, I say thank you because it makes my life easier now that it's more socially acceptable and people have alternative foods pretty much almost everywhere these days. So it's great. So Kat, thanks. Thanks for making my life easier. <laughs> It's the same with um, with uh, gluten-free foods. So actually, uh, what surprised me was how well set up a country like Italy is for celiacs. Mm. Um, it's actually one of the easiest places um, that I've been, and there's most places I have not been to, but one of the easiest places I've been to to get gluten-free food is actually in Italy, you know, the home of pasta. <laughs> But let me just flip it, Rachel. And what 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 is your response to? And Cat is not like this, as far as I've been able to glean so far. But there are certainly people, many of them on my Facebook feed, um, who say things like, "How can you justify eating animal flesh? Like it's wrong. It's as wrong as taking a human life." What's your response to that? I'll throw a subtle health and then a normal answer back. But for a health option, um, I can't eat a lot of protein-based foods that aren't meat. So a lot of my protein comes from chicken because I can't have a lot of nuts or um, eggs or well beans or I don't know a lot of a lot of healthy protein things. But I can't eat it, so I'm quite chicken dependent for health reasons. <laughs> but So I think that's a valid reason in this argument. But then I also think people just grew up in different generations of they were taught one thing or they grew up on a farm and it's easier to eat the cow and different generations, different lessons. I think it's it's all acceptable. You know, as long as people are nice, I don't think it matters what you eat. Do you think, Rach, that it's becoming um, a part of just a new age ideology? That is just something different to separate young people from the norm. Typically, let's say a baby boomers, boomers, it's it's meat. Let's eat meat, blah blah blah. But do you think it's just something um, people are trying to separate themselves from the norm of late? I think being vegan is more it's more doable now than it was fifty years ago. It's more there are alternatives you can buy. There are, there are recipes to make. I don't really think 50 years ago, people thought of it as an option. So that I think that's why it's more of a this generation thing because it just wasn't, it was done, but it wasn't really spoken about before. Okay. Yeah, there's a certain level of sometimes cultural and even class privilege that comes into even that choice. Um, I mean, without going too deeply into it, I remember many years ago, I was a mate of mine who was uh traveling around Europe and he was vegetarian and he was saying, oh, it's going to be really easy to be vegetarian when I get to like Greece and Spain and the, the poorer countries because they're not going to, you know, there's less money so that people won't be buying. He was completely wrong. Those are exactly the countries where it is most difficult to, to be a vegetarian. Um, and um, yeah, I, I remember going to visit my relatives in Italy. <laughs> when I was a vegetarian um, and trying to explain to them that I was a vegetarian and they just didn't get it. They didn't get the concept. And they thought that I was trying to save them money and they were saying, no, it's okay. We, we have a money now we can, you know, and it, because I knew for a fact that when they were growing up, when my parents' generation were growing up, um, they often, they rarely ate meat um, because they couldn't afford it but it wasn't a lifestyle choice. Um, mm. And in fact, there is a cultural component to it too. So yeah, I, I think there is a a certain, and this isn't true for everyone, obviously, but there's, there's a certain level of privilege that comes into that kind of wokeness that's around a lot of the arguments. Mm. Yeah. I think I, there has been a real, the, the culture of veganism and vegetarianism has, has really shifted in recent years because 
I think it, it used to be either from a, a very healthy or, or like a moral ethical perspective that people were, were coming to it, but it was, it was sitting in the same realm as, as health foods and, um, and, and some of that kind of alternative health stuff that, that often comes with a very large price tag. I think one of the reasons that it's becoming more common is because cooking shows are showing you how to how to cook these meals Woolworths and Coles have it right there next to the meat like I think that that accessibility is is really shifting things yeah and I feel like one of the biggest things that is bringing people to these ways of eating isn't the fully going into it for health fully going into it for for ethics and morality but it's actually the environmental stuff Absolutely. because a lot of people are not going full vegan or full vegetarian but meat-free mondays or cutting back or just having an awareness of of that of that impact um that that meat does have to the environment and i think you can you can argue back and forth about the ethics and the morals. You can argue back and forth about the health benefits because those things are um, uh, more nuanced and, and based on your perspective. But I don't think you can argue back and forth on the environmental impact of um, industrial meat production. And I, I think that is, that. people do, uh, but I, I, I find it very easy to feel like I'm on the right side of that argument. And <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. So my, my youngin became a, a, a vegetarian, full vegetarian on the 1st of January this year. And I thought, oh, well, because I have her half the week. And at first I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll accompany her while she's with me. But actually yeah. what I ended up doing is now I'm a six day a week vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, why not seven? Sorry, I like eating meat. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so many people do. And because I think it it does it uh, currently it takes a relatively unique relationship with food uh, to become full vegan or vegetarian and and lots of people have that strong kind of emotional or cultural connection with their food that 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 is d difficult to shift. But if the majority of people became three or four or five or six day a week vegetarians the impact that that has, whether you're coming from a health or an environmental or an ethical perspective is still enormous. And so I, I sit in the camp of vegans that I, I, I have my strong feelings because else I wouldn't have this lifestyle, but, but I don't see the most valuable way of, of interacting with people who aren't sitting in the same camp as me as, you know, judging the one day that you have meat Rob, because those six days from my perspective have, have the biggest impact anyway. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And uh, what I neglected to say was the reason my kid became a vegetarian was for environmental mm. reasons. And But what it's caused us to do as well is to look at the provenance of food. So how is it farmed? And for a number of years, we've been looking at things like food miles. So you, you can eat a vegetarian diet that is worse for the environment than a diet that includes meat. If you're eating a whole lot of stuff that's imported, where a lot of fossil fuels are burned to get it to you, um, compared to someone who eats meat that they have hunted themselves. Yeah, um, totally. Wild, you know, so yeah, so the rationale, the, the many different reasons why people choose the diets, I think the most important thing that comes out of all of it is being aware and conscious of how food gets to our table. Um, and that's the biggest impact that we can have on the environment. And also, I think, uh, you know, I hear people can argue till they're blue in the face, uh, in terms of our well-being, mental and physical well-being, that level of awareness that you bring to what goes in your mouth. Mm. And, and it's, it's been, you know, such an intentional disconnect um, between how food is created and, and our awareness of it. And, you know, the the words we use and, and the things that, that we consider um, to be traumatic or not in terms of, uh, you know, you want to um, shield young people from, from images of violence, um, but, you know, a, a meat section in, in a supermarket is not seen as images of violence. Whereas, um, you know, we go back 50 years or, or whatever when, when a, a child who might have grown up in a rural area i mean you know this still happens nowadays but it was more common would it would not be traumatic to to see the family animal being killed in front of you because that is just 
part of your understanding of how how food gets to you so that's what i yeah 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 so that disconnect um yeah between between the necessary violence of meat production i suppose yeah so when i was uh, much younger i was a full vegetarian for a while as i was mentioning before and the reason that stopped was actually because i went to work in the northern territory and this was at a time where if you were a vegetarian you could eat an onion that had sprouted or a green potato but there were very a white bread and those were pretty much your options so i had the option of become really unhealthy really fast or start eating meat again and yeah that's yeah so so there's there's all those things well let's the fascinating conversation but now let's swing it back to steve's original question other than the clearly important uh, <laughs> uh, culinary identity mm. who without talking about what it is you do uh, your job career whatever who the hell are you cat yeah it's interesting um because i think if you hadn't asked the question of what i would cook to to impress someone I, I probably wouldn't have mentioned the vegan thing unless you specifically asked me so um yes it's it's funny to yeah cycle back from that um who am i it's a good and it's a hard question framed that way um i'm 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 community focused um i i i crave i crave connection um and I love stories. I think that's me. Stories? Stories. What kind of stories? <laughs> oh, all of them, Rob. All of them. Um, I... There was an old man from Nantucket. <laughs> stories, yeah, Captain. I... How far back do your stories go? Well, this is, this is a fun part for me because... I have, I've known for most of my life that I have a pretty dysfunctional memory. Um, I don't, I don't remember my childhood, um, except for the stories I've been told as an adult. Um, I, as a kid, I had a very loose relationship with the truth. Um, and, and so um, would blur truth and storytelling quite a lot. And so I think, um, yeah, I, I have existed in this kind of not clear space between reality and storytelling for much of my life. Okay, so let's not say your personal history. What mm. about how far does your recall go with the ancient Greeks? Are you of the premise that there's five stories and they're just retold and retold and retold? Oh, interesting. I, I like... Um, uh, archetypal theory and and the idea that um, we have kind of stories that are necessary to to our culture and they vary from culture to culture but there are kind of overlaps um, and so yes that we do tell very similar stories on repeat in slightly different ways for slightly new generations and and that in those stories we find things that resonate strongly about the human experience yeah what archetypal or mythical persona, god, goddess, etc., do you most resonate with? Who's your favourite? That's a tricky one, because because I feel as you know, it's it's always shifting, always changing, and there's the stuff that I've been taught to repress of my archetypes, and the stuff that has been nurtured in me. Um, hmm. I feel like the um, like the the kind of mother carer figure is is something that was nurtured in me a lot um uh and so i have an interesting relationship with that one it, it it's something i do identify with but also kind of reject because it felt like a, a kind of limiting archetype um any, any biblical stories that resonate do you read the bible i i have i've spent much of my life reading the bible i don't read it so often anymore the Bible is full of some fantastically weird stories. Um, and the weird ones are not the ones that you get to have fun talking about in church. Um, is church something that was part of your upbringing, your background? So are these foundational stories in your history, these the biblical stories? 
They are, they are. Yeah. So church was a, a big part of my life growing up. Um, and uh, yeah, well into my teens. What's your um, favorite Bible story? My favorite Bible story, and I'm going to do a very bad job of remembering it now, but the one that always fascinated me and I kept wanting someone to preach a sermon on this somewhere in, in the old Testament around Noah time, you've got this brief mention of these creatures that are the children of humans and angels and they appear for a moment and then they disappear and it's like a plot point that you keep waiting to come back you think some point in the bible you're going to meet these really awesome people because you had the seed planted back there and then nothing they're gone just got these awesome superheroes that just disappear so yeah they were giants goliath was a giant as well Mm. was part of that family nephiliums i think they are I think you're right. That sounds right. What yeah. about the Apocrypha? Rachel, are you familiar with the Apocrypha? No. So with it was the with what we call the Bible, the Judeo Christian Bible, was that was that part of your upbringing, uh, Rachel? Uh, a little bit, but not a lot. So what were the sort of foundational stories that you remember? Pretty much none. <laughs> Nursery rhymes, none of that sort of stuff. Kids' stories, the little not- red engine mm-hmm. who could. Not biblical based, no. No, no, not biblical ones. I'm not just biblical based. Broadly, what 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 are the kind of foundational stories that what were the stories that you remember as a kid? Like for me it was Pinocchio. Pinocchio, I think it's Pinocchio. Was it the time Uncle Rob punched ten blokes up in the pub or anything? What what did your families did you have when you sat around the tables? Did you talk about uh, your grandfather coming from Russia, or I I was a weird child, and I kind of we went, all were. Kind Most of, of us eight. don't grow out of that. <laughs> I kind of went from eight to eighty real fast, and so I kind of skipped all of that. Uh, you know, like wanting to hear fairy tale things. I'm not really into it. Okay. Wow, well, that's this is a really interesting, you know, distinction there. So, what what would you say your relationship to stories is now? I don't really feel anything for. <laughs> I like hearing other people's personal stories, but fairy tales I think are overrated. Right. Hmm. Gotcha. You don't believe in happy endings at all, Rachel? I think people can make their own happy endings. I don't think you need a book to tell you that. Gnocchi. Um, Gnocchi. <laughs> grazie. So this is fascinating because we met, the four of us met, telling stories did we it's not it's true we did and you're a great storyteller rachel bloody good storyteller excellent storyteller so uh in our um in a, in a previous episode previously on green butcher of the block we had um we, we talked about how steve and i met telling stories specifically telling shakespeare stories uh in the context of a correctional center otherwise known as a prison Uh, And in fact, a few years later, uh, all four of us were in the same place and time doing that, were we not? That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So this leads me on to what I wanted to ask you both about next, which was that all four of us uh, have been involved in this this project of, of, of telling stories, both personal and those penned by William Shakespeare, whoever you believe she actually was. Uh, <laughs> and uh, since that time, as lives do, we've, we've gone in somewhat different directions. Um, and I'd love to hear from each of you about where your life has gone since that time, which was what, four-ish years ago, something like that? Because neither of you are currently involved in that particular project, if I'm not mistaken, and, and <laughs> haven't been for a year or two. Um, where has your journey uh, taken you since then? And how does it, if at all, relate back to that time? The prison project pretty much uh, stopped my life and did a completely different sidetrack direction, which I wasn't really expecting. Um, before I did Prison Project, I just wanted to be involved in acting and not be a glamorous actor, but be a dark and twisty actor who just did a lot of Shakespeare work. So you don't like stories, but you wanted to be an actor. Yeah, of course. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> perfect sense. Weird kid. 
weird kid. You still are. I know, yeah. Go on. And then from doing the Shakespeare in Prison projects, I became, I'll use the word obsessed, I became very obsessed with uh, inclusive theatre options and making theatre a really accessible thing, regardless of people's personal situations or locations or abilities. So I started, I pretty much immediately started studying psychology and criminology to kind of understand the background about people's behaviours and how they would accept things. And then I did criminology so I could go back into prisons one day and do creative therapies as a more as a psychology thing rather than just a fun thing. Um, so I, while working in prisons, I got, I kind of got sad that although I was really happy that the guys were just doing it for fun, I kind of got sad that it wasn't respected, dare I say, in the prison world. You know, like although people had fun coming to shows and the people we worked with really liked putting on shows, there was always that stigma over, oh, they're, they're like doing an acting class or some of the guards thought it was a waste of time. And so I really became passionate about trying to prove to everyone that creative therapies could be a really important thing in places like prisons. So I started doing that. And then I started um, running my own workshops in aged care facilities, as well as with special needs groups and trying to get my hands on every type of group that sometimes isn't offered the same classes as others. That's really strong, Rachel. You're such a strong person. I mean, I get a lot of my educational material from memes and things like that, but you've decided to prove your point so if I was going to prove my point to someone, I'd just send them a meme connection or a link or something <laughs> like that. You're going to do an eight-year degree, honours, yeah. to prove some of these guards wrong, eh? Yeah, <laughs> What's that, I'm, 10, 12 years of your life? I'm quite stubborn, so it doesn't really work in my favour sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got deadlines? So I, this is my um, seventh year of studying now, because I did my acting school first and I'm about to be a, a, a psychologist in a few months' time, so that's fun. Congratulations. Thank yes, you. yes. Well, uh, I could use some help. What do you charge? Have you, have you checked the rates <laughs> of late? Well, I won't be going into any of the private practising. I'll be doing all of the criminal rehab and special needs work, so that's okay. the It doesn't main. do abnormal psychology, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and that's quite a uh, contrast, too, that you're actually telling stories for old people. I think that, can you, can you tell us more about that? I love my old ducks. I've had my old ducks for, this is my third year with them. I love them. Um, they're beautiful. They're a group of, uh, the group that I'm working with now, they're pretty much 65 plus and they're so cute. There's no age. Not old. I said 65, <laughs> 65 is my youngest. I have up to like late 80s. So they're very cute. And um, we workshop together. They decide what themes they want to do. They decide what characters they'd like to explore. And then they basically throw all their ideas at me and then I'll go and hibernate for a few weeks and I'll write the script that they want to do. And then they'll put it on. Wow. Wow. That's to be commended. And who comes to see it? Uh, it's all public performances. So their families come, their friends come, the rest of the aged care centres will come. And then normally I'll throw people invitations like Kat. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. And throwing to Kat, tell us about mm -hmm. where you are, Kat. Similarly to, to Rachel, the um, being involved in, in the Shakespeare Prison Project was such a, a pivotal thing in, in my life and my self-identity. It's, it's, a, it's a really powerful project to experience, even just as an audience member, but then to to be there through through the process and then be there for a number of years. So um, I think if I'm right, I was involved in five or six iterations of the project. Um, and uh, when when I first went into it, um, I was uh, still still studying, finishing off my, um, my my uni studies and really kind of trying to work out who I was and where I was going um, with this stuff. And and for um, 
for those five or six projects, um, a lot of uh, a lot of my passion and self identity was really invested in that work because um, it's it's a space of of such uh, strong creativity and um, and elevating of of humanity and and such a, a a powerful place to to learn as as a creative. Um, so I got to learn from lots of really amazing facilitators and, and artists who uh, were both on the inside and the outside over, over my time there. Um, but after a, a chunk of time in there, I got very interested in um, learning a little bit more of the community side of things. Um, uh, so I, I did some postgraduate study in a community work and community development um, and then decided I, I needed some money and went and got myself a real job for a while working in those spaces. Um, and so I was, I was doing some of that simultaneously um, to still being involved uh, in, in, the, in the prison Shakespeare. Um, but both of those things are, are really exhausting spaces, um, I've, I found, um, uh, working um, in community work in the community sector and then also going uh, into uh, into prison can take a bit of a drain and so I just um, took a little little bit of a break from um, from the prison side of things just to to garner up my energy and then things shifted in a little bit of a surprising direction for me in that um, uh, a very talented friend um, thought she liked the way I worked and and the two of us decided we just give it a go and and start um a traditional theater company together one that doesn't work with a marginalized community or in the prison space and so for the last little while I've been focusing my energy in in making theater for people who um yeah are not in those worlds but I think what was interesting along that kind of part of the journey the the part that led to to the um to having founded my theater company called manola theater look it up everybody <laughs> no advertising on this podcast oh i'm sorry <laughs> manola theater company m-i-n-o-l-a buy all their stuff thanks Go to their shows. um so actually working in that prison space had such a huge impact on my confidence as a creative, as, as a creator, as someone who is allowed to give themselves permission to make things. Um, and I think part of that was the, 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 the family and community environment that was created by the project that um, for, for that part of the year you're you're with one of the most supportive chunks of people you're going to spend a good amount of time with and and so there's a lot of affirmation in that work um hearing from you know professional actors who um uh there's already a lot of respect and um and admiration for and then hearing from these incredibly talented people who happened to be incarcerated and did not realize that they were so amazing at telling stories um and so just being in that really unique creative environment getting a chance to try ideas getting a chance to um i i had the opportunity to direct a couple of projects um really helped hone how i saw myself as a director um and and what i thought i could bring to um you know traditional and and non-traditional theater experiences and so i i don't i think if i hadn't done that work i wouldn't have had the guts to go all right well i'll just call myself a director and start a theater company then <laughs> yeah that's yeah. very interesting do you say the incarcerated great storytellers do you feel like that's because of their days in the courtroom <laughs> <laughs> no all right but that's an interesting question um cat because i just want to ask there's always subterfuge with the glass ceiling and women's roles and their identity. Um, there's always sexual abuse undergirding some of our um, conversations and in the workplace. Is there any contrast either of you have felt in um, exploring, let's say, 
the outside world in your workplaces, bus stations, train stations, to how you felt with 10 criminals, no guards, no protection in a square box room? The most comfortable ever. The most respectful people, the most honest and understanding people. I got more respect and and um, people listen to me more in that environment than they do in real life. It changed my opinion of how people should treat each other. Wow. Wow. I always felt very uh, grateful to um, my predecessors in the project that by the time I came into the project, um, I think it had been running for, for five years. Um, and so I know that in those initial years, a lot of groundwork was laid by um, the people who are being involved, both incarcerated and not, uh, to make it within the the prison culture a, a very valuable activity. So that by the time I got in there and was sitting in a room of strange men all in green, there was already a sense amongst everyone in that room that the the value of of the work, the value of the project, the value of the art was was very high and so just immediately my value was very high and and so i i think a lot of the um just the amazing respect and community spirit and, and chivalry i would use that word to describe what i would uh, experience a lot in in that prison space was out of um yeah was was born out of how highly valued the the project itself mm. was yeah what about the guards less definitely less uh respect than the participants definitely i think they just looked the guards treated me like i was just a a a young girl trying to do drama workshops which i, I technically was but there was so much more to that yeah, I definitely got that feeling sometimes that some of the the custodial officers, also known as nings or screws, um, <laughs> thought it was a bit of a waste of time. I frankly thought some of them were a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. Um, I, I wondered with many were powerless or felt powerless in society. Um, and Because pr prison is designed to break down identity, um, your fight, your will. You're supposed to be reduced to just... A, a blob of matter and there the prison the prison officers had some sort of power and I think possibly uh, or, or do you agree that maybe uh, doing Shakespeare would would bring back that voice or that identity and that's what they opposed um to a degree yes I think that you know we were letting some of the participants run around like wild and do really fun things and make strange noises and do weird activities and laugh a lot and i think that's not really something that's typically seen inside prisons is a lot of people laughing in the same room at once and having fun so i can understand obviously i've studied prisons a lot and i can understand it from their uh, textbook point of view that it's not something that should happen in prison. I don't agree with that, but I can see how they would be very confused by the program. Yeah, one Do thing that was told to me way back, actually by someone who worked higher up in prison, like in senior management of the prison was, and they looked from side to side to make sure no one was listening. They said that the only difference between a lot of the guards and the prisoners is the color of their uniform. And what they meant by that, I believe, is that a lot of the people who end up as guards, as custodial officers, actually also come from low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. And they're the sorts of people who, um, much like me when I was young, would have felt excluded from so-called high culture, from something like Shakespeare, that that's for, you know, the, that's for the rich people or the well-educated or this, that and the other and it had never been for them, and that I got the feeling sometimes that they felt a little bit like, how come the prisoners get access to this and I don't? Yeah. Uh, a question for each of you. So why should people who are in prison, who are in a high security prison, who've obviously 
committed some kind of heinous crime, um, why should these people get to like have fun and do drama? Uh, because everybody should. Uh, drama is such a, a safe place if you have the right facilitators, a safe place for people to be able to express themselves in any way they need to, whether that's, you know, working through issues in characters or whether that's just being able to laugh for maybe the first time they have all week. Everyone should be given that opportunity to be able to express themselves creatively. Well, haven't these people forfeited their right to express themselves? Absolutely not. <laughs> Why not? We don't Just, want to know what I've got to say. People make mistakes all the time and no one has the right to judge anyone else on mistakes. Obviously, you know, some, some mistakes are worse than others, but prison is meant to be for rehabilitation and I think that's something that is really forgotten by a lot of people because a lot of people just go, oh, prison is a punishment. But technically, <laughs> prison is supposed to rehabilitate. So we're meant to give the people who come out of prison respect that they are a rehabilitated human being. So if they are a rehabilitated human being, why would they not deserve that respect? Particularly in Queensland, where 99% of the offenders will be released. Yeah. I mean, what baffles me about the prison system is that you're absolutely right. The rhetoric's changed, right? Back in the convict era, the rhetoric, the purpose of prisons was uh, discipline and punish. That was literally, you know, that was the handbook, discipline and punish. That was the rhetoric. Now the rhetoric is rehabilitate. Keep safe. That is both the general public and the people inside. Keep everyone safe and rehabilitate so we've changed the rhetoric completely but we're still using the same institutions as if somehow you can keep an institution that was designed to discipline and punish and without altering the form of the institution you can somehow flip over to rehabilitate re-educate educate or habilitate or yeah yeah that's interesting anyway well not interesting it's kind of disgusting um Kat, my question for you yeah. is, so you, you now, at this moment in time, are largely focused on doing um, theatre, um, I won't say for the mainstream, because independent theatre, well, it is mainstream, for a broader populace, right? Mm, yes. Look, in this time, in this critical time in our society, when we're faced with, uh, you know, the plague, uh, fires <laughs> and floods, environmental degradation, the, the collapse of civilization, the economy falling apart. Why are you wasting your time making theatre for the middle classes? It's a very good question. Um, and it comes back to, uh, I love stories. And so part of it is selfish. Well, sit in your dunny and read a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, particularly at this moment of plague and terror and disconnect from our communities, I feel like storytelling is so important. Um, and so I, I think there will always be people who connect to stories in different ways. Someone will love reading a book or watching a movie, but for people who, for whom that experience of being in the room in some way with someone while they are creating a piece of art that only exists in that moment um, uh, for, for people for whom that, that kind of storytelling is, is going to be the most powerful, then yeah, we need to tell stories about this moment. We need to tell stories that make us forget this moment um, for those reasons. Yes, that is why. why. Why? What does it do? You said it's important. Why? Uh, because it adds to our humanity. Um, because it makes us, uh, it, it makes us stand back from our own lives and uh, uh, examine our values. Um, it makes us see ourselves and other people on the stage in a different way, um, and and hence maybe shift something that that has been stuck in us. Um, and because I want to, because it's fun. Yeah. Well, 
yeah, it can be introspective. We can see in others things in ourselves, or we can identify things that may be hidden in us through the exploration of different characters. Do you think, Rachel, there's an opening there for you as a pioneer of working your Shakespeare or your storytelling with the officers? I would love to. I would love to get um, officers involved. I would love to do police work. I would love to do guard work. I would, I'm, I would love to do every angle of it. Get everyone to experience it and see what being involved in something creative can help them express. Okay. Well, that leads to our big question. Take, take some, a minute of repose to, to put this together. We want to know, are you happy? What would make you happy? How would you know you're happy? Are, are there goals you're heading to? Are you happy, Rachel? How could you be so? Am I happy? Oh, gosh. Do you um, even care whether you're happy or not? Is it, is it important to you? I am happy when I help others be happy. I get extremely happy after I get to run workshops where other people have fun. Um, so I suppose my value of happiness is uh, ensuring that I give energy to other people. So you quantify happiness when you see it in others. Yeah. How do you find happiness coming from yourself without the others do you think it's possible uh i i don't i personally think i'm the type of person who i i am the caregiver cat i i need to i need to help others to be happy i fully admit that and at points that has definitely gotten me uh in trouble because i'll definitely put other people's needs before my own but that's the magic thing about doing a psychology degree is you learn so much about yourself. So <laughs> I've definitely started um, putting my own needs on the same importance as uh, doing things for others. So really scheduling in time to, to just look after myself instead of trying to do 15,000 workshops and write 10,000 scripts in the same week, which really just hurts me. <laughs> so what do, what do you do for yourself? I sleep now. That's fun. <laughs> Definitely didn't used to. Had terrible sleeping patterns because I'd be up till 3 a.m. typing different scripts and then I'd get up at 5 a.m. for work. So, Wow. Um, Rachel, I was interested in the idea if... Uh, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. Mm. You, you are sleeping better now, doing the things you do now, than you did three, four years ago when you were more focused on making theatre. Is that what you were saying? thousand percent because I am I'm actively trying to look after myself now instead of just worrying about trying to get things done in time right right well I think sleeping better the so-called lying straight in bed at night mm. um, that's a big sign it goes towards contentment joy happiness whatever you want to call it well done thank you it's impressive yeah I get like a good six hours and I know that's not a not a not a lot still but <laughs> Really impressive for me. So going from we, three to six. That's about a week's worth of sleep for me, six hours. Yeah. What about you, Kat? Are you happy? I, I am very content. Um, I, I find happiness a weird thing, particularly right now. Um, and, and I know that, that lots of people have, have similar experiences. Um, we're all going through a, a strange uh, cultural experience, and and so some days, no, I'm I'm not happy, um, but other days I I am, um, and so I think that that kind of happiness as an emotional, like a, a chemical in my brain, um, that that alters that goes up and down, um, but but I I have lovely consistent structures in my life um that that make me content i feel like i i'm currently in a really nice balance between doing things i love and doing things that um provide meaning uh to those immediately around me and kind of further out as well um and i think that balance is 
is a big part of my happiness that um yeah personal fulfillment uh you know ethical obligation stuff so you're both gaining happiness from what you can get from the outside world and it's interesting that you said uh you feel like your unhappy days is just purely chemical you don't explore whether it's something subconscious or subliminal or shadow work that you're not aware of i'm sure it's all of that absolutely um i'm you know i'm very good at, at um sealing off the little boxes in my soul that i don't want to look at and then sometimes they leap out at me i suppose it's chemical in you know it wakes up and i i wake up and that's the day that the boxes want to open um uh rather than something having specifically changed on that day in my life you know yeah okay. so i think chemicals not if not external that's internal i mean i presume you're not talking about you know whether you've smoked crack that day or not that would be chemical external it's true so, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes yes i'm talking about the internal chemicals yes keeping in your brain show. yeah Okay. Yeah. I've been researching ayahuasca. Do you guys know uh, about ayahuasca? I do, I do. I do. <laughs> to Byron Bay already. <laughs> the, 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 the border's closed. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Can we keep it closed? <laughs> well, probably. All right. Well, here's another question. One more to go before we go. Uh, I'm interested in anti-vaxxers, whether you guys are anti-vaxxers. I suppose like to seize both sides of the coin i think if you're an anti-vaxxer this is your time go to china show people you don't need shots and vaccines all the rest and prove it to us but on the other side um if there's 28 kids in the school who have been vaccinated and there's two kids that haven't why are those parents so upset that the two haven't because their kids are protected and vaccinated do you have any 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 point of view? What's what's someone's stance? I first of all am am not in any way a medical expert. If if we haven't worked that out yet, um, not my field of study, not something I know. And so the science of of um, uh, how vulnerable those other twenty eight kids are, I'm 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 pretty unaware of. Um, but I I am a person who believes in our mutual obligations to each other that you know society gets better and looks after each other um by thinking about the whole not the individual um and so i feel like people who make unique decisions and that they know that they are the fringe decision um and they know that other people believe their decisions are dangerous then the obligation is on on that person, on the person making the unique assumed dangerous decision to navigate their lives around the whole rather than endangering the whole, I guess that's where I land. Okay. Rachel, any thoughts? Uh, I'm probably a little bit more passionate about the subject because there are a few people in my family who are medically complex and vulnerable. So the people who don't get vaccinated, even if it's just one, put them at immense amount of risk compared to what they would be if everyone got a vaccination so obviously my whole family is vaccinated so we can all see each other but if i suddenly chose to not get vaccinated i would be cutting those people out of my life because they wouldn't be near me so i'm very passionate that everyone should get vaccinated i know there's a lot of religious reasons and personal reasons and that's fine but obviously there's always going to be that personal debate but Basically, if you want to be near my family, you have to get vaccinated. Well, I think you've hit on a great topic that is a, an episode in and of itself. Mm. Mm. I think, I mean, I know some anti-vaxxers and I think we could get one of them and a public health person on and have an episode just on that. Just around the corner. Yeah. So people can stay tuned. That'll be coming up. Blah, 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 blah. Do either of you, Rachel or Kat, have any last thing that you would love our listeners to hear from you before we sign off? 
I've had a lovely chat. Thanks, guys. This is fun. Well, that's not we've we've not done our job correctly, then, Rob. Right. I've had a good time. The drawing board, Steve. <laughs> yeah, we'll it felt like um between uh, the cushion and the block. It was a very comfortable, oh, lovely well, space to be. Walking <laughs> there somewhere between the princess and the pea. No wait, Rachel. No, I agree. It's been um far less traumatizing than I thought it would be. So <laughs> that's put that on the marketing material. <laughs> Far less traumatizing than I thought it would be. Next time around, we're going to be hard hitting. Get your shots. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time on Between the Butcher and the Block. Block, 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 block. Far less traumatizing than I thought it would be. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.